Introduction You Matter, a retreat guide for Advent. God has something to say to you today. He is with you right now. In fact, He never stops thinking about you. You really matter to Him. Savor that truth, that reality. God, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of the human family, is thinking about me right now, wanting to hear the thoughts of my heart. And he has something to say to me. Take a moment to let that sink in. To reinforce your faith in God's presence, listen once again to the very first sentences of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him share in his own blessed life. For this reason, at every time and in every place, God draws close to man. He calls man to seek him, to know him, to love him with all his strength. If God is drawing close to us at every time and in every place, then that includes now, here. He is right now drawing close to you. If God is always calling us to seek him, to know him, to love him with all our strength, then that includes right now, right now. Now, he is moving within your heart, stirring you to want to know him better. And that is what this retreat guide will focus on, getting to know God better, especially getting to know better his personal love for you, as proven so gloriously in the great mystery of Christmas. Advent is about preparing our souls to celebrate Christmas worthily, as it should be celebrated. Christmas is one of the two days in the liturgical year when every priest is permitted to celebrate three Masses, at night, at sunrise, and during the day. Unfortunately, Christmas is such a busy time that we often don't get the chance to ponder the beautiful prayers and readings that the liturgy assigns to each one of those Masses. This retreat guide will do just that. The three meditations are dedicated to the prayers and readings of the three Masses. And in the conference, we will take a walk through the history of this liturgical celebration, going all the way back to the very first centuries of Christianity. Before we start, Take a few moments to thank God in the silence of your heart for the opportunity to spend this time with him and ask him to grant you the grace during this retreat to believe more deeply than ever that in his eyes you really, really matter. Throughout this retreat guide, this bell sound will indicate the end of a section. Whenever you hear it, you may want to pause this recording and take some time to reflect and to speak with God about what you've just listened to. First meditation, God will never give up on you. Time and eternity touch. One powerful feeling animates the ancient prayers and readings for the Christmas Mass at midnight. Joyful amazement. The angels are joyfully amazed. They are so amazed that they fill the midnight sky with their heavenly glory. They can't hold back their celebration as they announce their good news of great joy. The shepherds are amazed. They are frozen with amazement as the sky erupts with angelic celebration. The prophet Isaiah, who foresees this amazing moment centuries before in the first reading, is so amazed that he pours out a superabundant litany of joyful praise to describe the promised Savior, Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. What is the cause of this joyful amazement that floods Christmas night? What would you say the cause is? How would you describe it? We need to ask ourselves this question, especially if we find that our own amazement has become dulled over the years. The amazement comes from something that is quintessentially Christian. It comes from one of the things that make Christianity absolutely unique in the vast menagerie of world religions. 
It comes from the shocking realization that God chose to come to our rescue, that God didn't give up on us, that God didn't stay aloof from us in our foolishness, our sinful rebellion, and our miserable pettiness, that God himself decided to invade this land of gloom just for our sake, that God has not only come into our lives, but as St. Paul puts it in the second reading, he actually gave himself for us to deliver us. You see, we can't save ourselves. If there's one thing the history of the world and the history of each of our individual lives tells us, it's that. Salvation, the deep existential fulfillment we yearn for now and forever, doesn't come from us, from our efforts to be good enough, from our clever discovery of some kind of secret knowledge or technique, or from our lucky encounter with a whimsical divinity or a winning lottery ticket. No. Salvation comes from God. It happened on God's initiative. We didn't deserve it. We had no right to it. But he did it. That's what's so amazing. The birth of Jesus Christ is the entrance of eternity into time, of the divine into the human. It is God bursting through all the barriers that we put up to keep him out, sneaking back into our shattered world by becoming one of us. It is God proving that he really does love us, that we really do matter to him after all, each one of us, because this is what love does. It finds a way. That's what the opening antiphon of the Christmas Mass during the night, the first of the three Christmas Masses, celebrates when it says, Let us all rejoice in the Lord, for our Savior has been born in the world. Today true peace has come down to us from heaven. From Throne to Cradle this amazing initiative of God is illustrated beautifully in the mosaic above the high altar of one of the first churches dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome, built in the 5th century. The center of the mosaic, decorating the triumphal arch directly above the altar, depicts a royal imperial throne. Obviously, it's the throne of the King of Heaven. But there's something funny about this throne. It's empty. The King of Heaven has left his heavenly throne. He has traded it in for a much different seat, a little manger jerry-rigged into a cradle. The symbolic meaning of the mosaic takes on special weight inside the church of St. Mary Major because of the special relic kept there. A pious tradition holds that the pieces of the manger Mary used as a cradle for the baby Jesus were preserved and venerated by the early Christians, and that eventually some of them made their way to Rome and are still kept reverently in this very church, under the high altar, under the image of the empty throne. From glorious heavenly throne to humble, dirty, earthly manger. Only God could have done that. And only a God who loves us sinful humans so much that he will never, never give up on us. We could never have reached up to heaven's throne from our earthly mangers in order to snatch salvation for ourselves. God had to do it. He had to take the initiative, and he did and he still does, and he always will. It's undeniable proof that to him we matter. You search me, and you know me. Everything Jesus did in his earthly life was done for all of humanity and for each individual person. Everything Jesus did in his earthly life reveals the pattern of how he acts in the lives of each of his followers. The Catechism assures us of this when it says, all Christ's riches are for every individual and are everybody's property. Christmas is no exception. 
Jesus came for each of us on that cold night in Bethlehem. And every day, Jesus still comes down from his heavenly throne in order to enter into the Bethlehems of our hearts through the Eucharist. Take a few minutes to let yourself be amazed once again by the staggering reality of Christmas present at every Mass. Savor this unchangeable truth that God didn't give up on you, that he came with his glorious grace to be your Savior, your Wonder Counselor, your God Hero, your Father forever. To give expression to your own joyful amazement, you may want to include Psalm 96 in your prayer, the psalm proclaimed during this midnight Mass. If for some reason you find it hard to let that truth sink in, you may want to turn to Psalm 139 and read it over slowly, prayerfully, letting the Holy Spirit convince you more than ever that God is always thinking of you, always with you, always loving you. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Tell his glory among the nations, among all peoples, his marvelous deeds. For great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and power go before him. Power and grandeur are in his holy place. Give to the Lord, you families of nations. Give to the Lord glory and might. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring gifts and enter his courts. Bow down to the Lord, splendid in holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Declare among the nations, the Lord is king. The world will surely stand fast, never to be shaken. He rules the peoples with fairness. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and what fills it resound. Let the plains be joyful and all that is in them. Then let all the trees of the forest rejoice before the Lord who comes, who comes to govern the earth, to govern the world with justice and the peoples with faithfulness. Psalm 139, for the leader, a psalm of David. Lord, you have probed me, you know me. You know when I sit and stand. You understand my thoughts from afar. You sift through my travels and my rest. With all my ways you are familiar. Even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it all. Behind and before you encircle me and rest your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, far too lofty for me to reach. Where can I go from your spirit? From your presence, where can I flee? If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I lie down in Sheol, there you are. If I take the wings of dawn and dwell beyond the sea, even there your hand guides me. Your right hand holds me fast. If I say, surely darkness shall hide me, and night shall be my light. Darkness is not dark for you, and night shines as the day. Darkness and light are but one. You formed my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My very self you know. My bones are not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, fashioned in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me unformed. In your book all are written down. My days were shaped before one came to be. How precious to me are your designs, O God! How vast the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the sands. When I complete them, still you are with me. 
When you would destroy the wicked, O God, the bloodthirsty depart from me. Your foes who conspire a plot against you are exalted in vain. Do I not hate, Lord, those who hate you? Those who rise against you, do I not loathe? With fierce hatred I hate them. Enemies I count as my own. Probe me, God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there is a wicked path in me. Lead me along an ancient path. The following questions may help your personal reflection and prayer. In my relationship with God, have I ever felt the joyful amazement that characterizes this first Mass? What triggered it and what was it like? What did I learn from it? How deeply do I feel the need for Jesus to be my Savior? How do I express that felt need? What elements in my life tend to dampen that feeling? If I were with Mary and Joseph in the stable cave at Bethlehem, what would I say to them, to Jesus? What would they say to me? Second Meditation Christ is your light. Life without light. The second Mass that every priest is permitted to celebrate on Christmas is the Sunrise Mass, but we can only celebrate it if we get up early enough to do so around dawn. And that's significant because the ancient prayers and readings of this Mass share one common theme, Christ is our light. The opening prayer of this Mass describes our experience of Christmas as one of being suffused with light. Here's what the priest prays. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that as we are bathed in the new radiance of your incarnate word, the light of faith which illumines our minds may also shine through in our deeds. Years after Christ's birth in his public life, he will return to this theme of light and claim it as one of his own unique and revelatory titles, I am the light of the world. We are so used to this image and this symbolism that we kind of take it for granted. But have you ever thought deeply about light, what it is, what it does, what it brings? Imagine a world without light, pitch blackness all the time. No beautiful sunsets, no beautiful views, no colors, no images, no photographs of loved ones, no conversations looking into a friend's eyes, no smiles to warm our hearts. How different our lives would be without light. What an impact light has on every aspect of our lives. When Jesus comes into the world to be the light of the world, he is claiming to make that much of a difference, but spiritually. Until Jesus came, we didn't know God. Even the Israelites had a limited understanding of God. And the ancient religions had a vague notion that there must be a divine realm, but that's about it. Their pantheons and their myths were sincere but blind efforts to enter into a relationship with an unknown God. As St. Paul described it, they were people who could not see God, and so ended up simply, and at best, feeling their way towards him. But now Jesus has come to us, and he reveals God just as turning on a light in a darkened room reveals everything in the room. And yet, light in the ancient world and in the Bible was never only a visual thing. Before electricity, the only way you could get light was with fire of some kind. And fire is always warm. Light always brought illumination, but it also always brought warmth and life. The first thing God created, in fact, was light and with it the conditions for life itself, the warmth of existence. Imagine what life would be like without warmth. There would be no life, 
no movement, no exchange, no building, no growing. Spiritually, Jesus, our light, not only shows us who God is, like a professor explaining something on a chalkboard, but he brings God into our lives, and our hearts quicken with new life, new hope, new energy, new fire. Jesus tells us that God is love, that God is mercy, that God is interested in us. And he brings that love, that mercy, that interest into our lives, into our experience. This is why St. Paul can describe Christmas in the second reading for this Mass as the day when the kindness and generous love of God our Savior appeared. This is why the shepherds leave the little stable cave at Bethlehem, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They had heard and seen, they had experienced a new creation, a new revelation, a wholly new and unimagined manifestation of God's commitment to them, of God's desire to be with them, Emmanuel. Mass at dawn celebrates this. It celebrates the dawn of a new period in the history of the universe. As the responsorial psalm puts it, a light will shine on us this day. The Lord is born for us. God's lamps. Our faith, our acceptance of Jesus and all he reveals, is what opens up our lives to receive this new light with its brightness and its life-giving warmth. Through the centuries, one of the favorite symbols in Christian art for the virtue of faith was a woman holding a lit oil lamp. In our churches today, we often still use oil lights as sanctuary lamps. This same symbolism is used during the Easter Vigil Mass, with the lighting of the Paschal candle and the passing of that light from person to person throughout the church. When we celebrate Mass, we are required by church law to have living flames, candles or oil lamps, on the altar. Electric light bulbs don't count. The living flame, giving off its illumination and its warmth, burning itself out in order to give light to those all around it, is still a powerful symbol of Jesus. And it is also a powerful symbol of what each Christian is called to be. The prayer over the offerings for this Mass at dawn expresses it beautifully. May our offerings be worthy, we pray, O Lord, of the mysteries of the Nativity this day, that just as Christ was born a man and also shone forth as God, so these earthly gifts may confer on us what is divine. When we were baptized, the light of Christ was lit in our souls. At confirmation, the lamp was enlarged and strengthened. Whenever we receive the Eucharist, the light is increased. Our lamp is refilled with oil. If we happen to expose the flame to the harsh winds of sin, we come to confession to light it up again. We have this light. It burns in our souls. It is ours. Jesus is our light. We have him in our hearts, in our minds, in the very core of our being. The only thing that can put it out is sin. And even sin doesn't have to have the last word. This is why St. Paul was able to write to the Romans. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword? No. In all these things we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor present things, nor future things, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We matter to God. You matter to God. 
So much, in fact, that he has come to be your light. And nothing can ever change that. The Lord is my light. When did you first see the light of Christ? When did you first feel the warmth of his presence? Do you remember? When was the darkest moment of your life so far, and how did Christ invade it with his love? When was the coldest time of your life, and how did Jesus warm it up? Do you remember? We need to remember and reflect on our experience of God's light. We need to think about the times when he has guided us through our deserts with a pillar of fire, just as he did for his chosen people during the Exodus. If we don't use our memory to keep our faith bright and strong, we will become vulnerable to cynicism, discouragement, rationalism, and frustration. We will forget that we really, really, really matter to God. The gospel passage for this Mass at sunrise shows Mary responding to the visit of the shepherds by keeping all these things and reflecting on them in her heart. She was savoring the amazing depth and breadth of God's love for her. Take some time now to do the same. Think about your experience, your own personal unique experience of Christ your light. Talk to him about it. Thank him for it. Renew your confidence in the power of his unquenchable truth and life to guide, sustain, and inspire you, always and everywhere. To help your conversation with the Lord, you may want to read slowly and prayerfully Psalm 27. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is my life's refuge. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers come at me to devour my flesh, these my enemies and foes themselves stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart does not fear. Though war be waged against me, even then do I trust. One thing I ask of the Lord, this I seek, to dwell in the Lord's house all the days of my life, to gaze on the Lord's beauty, to visit his temple. For God will hide me in his shelter in time of trouble. He will conceal me in the cover of his tent and set me high upon a rock. Even now my head is held high above my enemies on every side. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and chant praise to the Lord. Hear my voice, Lord, when I call. Have mercy on me and answer me. Come, says my heart, seek his face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not repel your servant in anger. You are my salvation. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me, God, my Savior. Even if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in. Lord, show me your way. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not abandon me to the desire of my foes. Malicious and lying witnesses have risen against me. I believe I shall see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Take courage. Be stout-hearted. Wait for the Lord. The following questions may help your personal reflection and prayer. When have I experienced most dramatically the light of Christ? When did I most recently experience it? Thank God for that. Savor the memories. If I could see my faith in the form of a candle or an oil lamp, how bright would it be? What elements, activities, and relationships in my life tend to fill up my lamp and make it burn more brightly? What elements tend to drain it? 
talk to God about that. Follow Mary's example and reflect in your heart about past Christmases, their joys, their sorrows, their graces. Do this in the company of Mary and converse with her about those memories. Third meditation, doing our part. Proclaim to all the nations. The third mass of Christmas, the mass during the day, changes gears a little bit. The first two masses brought us into the intimacy of the stable cave at Bethlehem. This third mass expands the horizon of Christmas to every corner of time and space. All the ends of the earth will behold the salvation of our God, proclaims the first reading in the responsorial psalm. And then the second reading from the letter to the Hebrews explains that in times past, God spoke partially in bits and pieces through the prophets. But from now on, he has spoken fully by the incarnation of his son. And in the gospel, the high point of the entire three mass liturgy, St. John picks up the theme of Christ as the light and extends it far beyond the borders of Israel. The true light, he writes, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Christmas is for everyone because Jesus is for everyone. He is the universal savior. In the end, there is only one joy that will last forever, only one light that will never go out, Christ's. Only Jesus is the bridge that leads us into the joy of communion with the Blessed Trinity and into the indescribable light of God's glory in heaven. As Jesus explained during his public ministry, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But how is the message of Bethlehem going to reach every human heart? How is God's word in Christ going to be spread to every corner of time and space? Through Christians, through us. We are not just recipients and beneficiaries of the light of Christ. We are bearers of that light. Our faith transforms us into living lamps. St. John makes this clear in the gospel for this mass. But to those who did accept him, he gave the power to become children of God. We are children of God. We share in God's own life. Christ dwells within us. Unless we extinguish the light of Christ through sin, we are living flames of grace extending God's love and salvation into the world. Through our words, our actions, and our example, we bring light, warmth, hope, and life to those around us who are stuck in the cold, dark night of sin and secularism. This is why Christ, who called himself the light of the world, also calls his disciples the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and then put it under a bushel basket. It is set on a lampstand where it gives light to all in the house. Just so your light must shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your heavenly Father. This is the essence of our mission as Christians. It is another proof that we really matter to God so much that he has made us his partners and his co-workers in the salvation of the world. Blessed Mother Teresa lights a lamp. There's a beautiful story about how Blessed Mother Teresa of Calcutta spread this light of Christ. You may have heard it. Once she was staying with her community of sisters who were working with the Aborigines in Australia. While she was there, she visited an elderly man who lived in total isolation, ignored by everyone. His home was disordered and dirty. She told him, please let me clean your house, wash your clothes, and make your bed. He answered, I'm okay like this, let it be. 
she said. You will be still better if you allow me to do it. He finally agreed, so she was able to clean his house and wash his clothes. While she was cleaning, she discovered a beautiful lamp covered with dust. It looked like it hadn't been used in years. She said to the man, Don't you light that lamp? Don't you ever use it? He answered, No. No one comes to see me. I have no need to light it. Who would I do it for? Mother Teresa asked, Would you light it every night if the sisters came? He replied, Of course. From that day on, the sisters committed themselves to visiting him every evening. Mother Teresa left Australia. Two years passed. She had completely forgotten about that man. Then she received a message from him. Tell my friend that the light she lit in my life still continues to shine. That's what it means to be a true Christian. To give, to bless, to reach out. To simply share with others what we have received from our Lord. To light lamps in the dark and dusty corners of this fallen world. Just as Christ did on that cold night in Bethlehem. Keep the fire burning. But we can't do that if Christ's light isn't burning strong in our own hearts. And it's so easy to let the flame burn low, to lose our spiritual energy, to get tired, frazzled, frustrated. It's easy to become weighed down by the cares of the world. When that happens, we stop responding to God's action in our lives. We become like those mentioned in the gospel for this Mass, those who belonged to Christ but didn't receive him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not accept him. God is always coming into our lives to strengthen our hope, to inspire us, to guide us, because we matter to him. But we are not always as open and docile to him as we could be. What can we do to keep the fire burning in our own hearts? This is a beautiful question to ask ourselves during Advent, when we are called to prepare a way for the Lord. To help reflect on this, you may want to look ahead a little bit to Epiphany and think about the three gifts that the Magi brought to the baby Jesus. These gifts express the wise men's love and faith, and they can symbolize three doors that we should always try to keep open to God so that His grace can keep nourishing our hearts. The first gift was gold. Material things, wealth, possessions, good looks, success, stuff. In our world, it is so easy to put too much emphasis on these, to lean too much on them, to idolize them. If we have a lot of them, we can become overly attached to them. If we don't have enough of them, we can become obsessed with worry or with envy. Either way, how we deal with material things can end up being a closed door that keeps out God's grace. The second gift was incense the sweet-smelling symbol of prayer, the second door. Incense rises towards the sky just as prayer lifts our minds and hearts to God. Daily prayer keeps us tuned in to God's wavelength, but a healthy prayer life requires commitment. We have to fight to make and follow through on that commitment. We have to fight to make the time. We have to fight to live in such a way that our prayer time can be a real heart-to-heart -heart meeting with the Lord. As St. Faustina Kowalska said, in order to hear the voice of God, one has to have silence in one's soul and to keep silence. Not a gloomy silence, but an interior silence, that is to say, recollection in God. The third gift was myrrh, the valuable spice used to embalm the dead, a symbol of death and suffering, a preview of the cross, the third door. When we flee our crosses, we flee God. When we try to carry them on our own, they crush us. 
God permits suffering in our lives in order to draw us closer to himself. But we have to let him do so. We have to exercise our faith. We have to unite our crosses to Christ's cross. You matter to God. By giving you another Christmas, he is reminding you of that powerfully. God wants to be your light, and he wants you to have the joy that comes from sharing that light. Advent is a season to savor those truths and to allow God's grace extra room to purify, revitalize, and renew your faith. Take some time now to do some savoring and to ask God what he wants you to do to get ready for Christmas. And when your retreat time is over, you may want to finish by offering your heart once more to God through praying the original Christmas carol, the Gloria. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory, Lord God, heavenly King, O God, almighty Father. Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world. Receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Have mercy on us. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. The following questions may help your personal reflection and prayer. How deeply do I feel the Christian call to spread Christ's light, to be messengers of Christ's light? Who has been a messenger of Christ's light for me, and how did they do it? Thank God for those influences and learn from them. How would God like me to give better attention to the gold, incense, and myrrh in my life during this Advent? Conference, the history of Christmas. So far we've been meditating on the truths about Christmas. Now we're gonna shift gears and we're gonna talk a little bit about the origin of the liturgy and what we can learn from it and reflect a little bit on the history of the church. So this is a little bit more directed to the mind and not so much to the heart. But in the end, it'll also have repercussions on our heart. I wanna talk about three different things in general, three topics we're gonna to cover. First, where the date for Christmas came from. Secondly, we're gonna talk about the heart of the liturgical celebration itself. Why do we celebrate three masses? When did that start? How did that get going? And then third, we'll just finish up briefly showing where the season of Advent came from, where it came out of history, how it entered into the tradition of the church. So these will be the three topics that we talk about, and we're gonna focus first on the date. Now, when we talk about the date for Christmas, we have to ask two questions. First question is, why did the date for Christmas get settled so late in history? Because it wasn't until the 300s that we started celebrating Christmas on December 25th. And then secondly, why did we choose December 25th? So let's talk about those. Winter solstice, transfigured. As always, to answer these questions, we need to go back into history a little bit. Uh, in the 300s, the liturgy began to take formal form, so to speak. The details of the liturgy uh, became solid, became fixed, became universal throughout the church. Why? Why did it take 300 years for that to start to happen? There's a simple reason, really. For the first two and a half, three centuries of Christianity, the church was persecuted. It wasn't permitted to worship in public. 
So what could it do? Bishops and communities throughout the Roman Empire followed the basic liturgical uh, schedule or the basic liturgical year, which was built around Easter and Passion Week, but the rest of the, the memorials of the saints and the rest of the feasts and the rest of the traditions, they developed in different ways in different parts of the empire. And so you had developing different liturgical traditions all built around the same core. In the East, you had the Syrio-Antiochian tradition. You also had, in Egypt, you had the Alexandrian tradition, which led to the Coptic church and the Ethiopian liturgy. And then up in Constantinople, current day Istanbul, you had the Byzantine liturgy develop. In Italy, you had the Roman liturgy. And then in Northern Italy, you had the Ambrosian liturgy, you had the Gallican liturgy in France, and you had the Mozarabic liturgy in Spain. So all throughout the Roman Empire, you had different liturgical traditions developing and changing and adopting to local customs, but still with the same core, the core of the mass and the core of the liturgical year, Easter and the Passion. Now, once the period of persecution ended and Christians were allowed, finally, after 313, to worship publicly, to worship freely, not having to worry about a new wave of persecution, well, then these liturgical traditions began to become formalized. They could start putting together liturgical books. They could start putting together liturgical vestments. They didn't have to worry about the Roman police coming and apprehending them at any moment. So that enabled the liturgy to take formal appearance and the traditions to begin to solidify. There was also another factor that caused that to happen. In the 300s, there began to emerge heresies, heresies regarding the nature of Christ. Was he truly God and truly man or just like a demigod? Uh, heresies regarding the Trinity itself. Was the Holy Spirit fully divine? These types of questions started to be asked and dealt with by theologians in this period. And as a result of that, different schools in these arguments, different groups of priests would adjust the prayers of the liturgy in order to support their particular viewpoint on this doctrinal question. And so the church saw fit, while well, we need to formalize the prayers of the liturgy so that they're not heretical. So that was another factor that led to the formalization of the liturgy in the 300s. So that's the first question. Why did we get the dates only in the 300s? Because of the liturgical year and liturgical forms were being developed and solidified at first during that period. Now we can get to the second question about the date. Why December 25th? Two different traditions emerged during the first few centuries of the church about what day to celebrate the birth of our Lord. In the East, in the Eastern churches, there was a strong pagan tradition of celebrating the winter solstice on January 6th. And in the West, ever since the Emperor Aurelian emphasized the worship of the sun and the sun god throughout the whole empire, they celebrated the winter solstice on December 25th. And they celebrated the rebirth of the invincible sun the unconquerable sun, the sun god itself. The commonality here between these two dates in East and West was a pagan recognition or celebration of the winter solstice. So that's the shortest day in the Northern Hemisphere, the shortest day when the days begin to get longer. So it's really a festival of light, a recognition of this natural rhythm of the light of the sun increasing again in the middle of the winter. When the church was spreading in these centuries, it had to meet people where they were. And so they wanted to celebrate the birth of the true Son of God, the true light of the world, the true Son of justice. These are all biblical terms, biblical meaning. That's who Jesus is. And so we're gonna celebrate the birth of our Lord, our light, our Son. And what day would we do it? Well, let's do it on the days when they used to celebrate the winter solstices. That's a way to kind of evangelize these pagan peoples 
to teach them the true meaning of just a shadow of meaning which they had found in their pagan religions. It was a shadow of meaning, and this is the true meaning, so this is the true son of justice, this is the true light of the world, so we'll celebrate his birth on these traditional days. And so in the East, January 6th became a day to celebrate what they called Epiphany. And December 25th in the West became the day when they celebrated the birth of the Lord, right? The Natalis, the day, the day of the birth, Natalis Christi. So these are the development of two different dates throughout the early centuries. And in the fourth century, in the 300s, uh, when Christianity was free to worship in public, there began to have communication, there began to be communication, more communication between the churches in the East and the churches in the West. And so the feasts of the birth of our Lord on the 25th and the manifestation of our Lord on the 6th kind of became related and the Christmas season began to be formed. Now I wanna pause for a minute because this is one of the things that some critics of the church say shows that Christianity was just kind of a, uh, an outgrowth of pagan religion. Not true. This actually teaches us that the church reached out and met people where they were and could relate the truths of the Catholic faith of Christian revelation to the shadows of, of kind of religious intuition that was present in the pagan religions. And so this term, epiphany, which was a religious term for the pagan religions, it meant a manifestation of a god or a king or a ruler, it meant the day when that king or ruler was born, the day the king or ruler was exalted, the day the king or ruler came to visit a particular city with all his royal pomp and circumstance, that was an epiphany, a manifestation, a showing forth of the ruler. It was also a word that was used for the annual feast of particular pagan gods when it was believed that the pagan god would enter into the temple where the people were. So it was the entering in, the making present, the being present of this important divine figure. Well, in the second reading for the night mass, the reading from the letter of St. Paul to Titus, this word epiphany is used in the Greek of the New Testament in two places. So in Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14, St. Paul tells us, for the grace of God has appeared, appeared, the Greek, epiphany, the Latin, aparuit. The grace of God has appeared, saving all and training us to reject godless ways and worldly desires and to live temperately, justly, and devoutly in this age. As we await the blessed hope, the appearance, and again, the appearance, that's epiphania, adventus in Latin, Epiphania in Greek. So it's translated into Latin as Adventus. Epiphania, the appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have the wisdom of the church, taking a term and a reality that the pagans understood and baptizing it, transforming it into a term that can help reveal the truth of Christ himself. So that's how the dates, December 25th and January 6th, were chosen because they were related to these pagan feasts of, related to the winter solstice, the coming of the light, the manifestation of the great royal and divine figure of the gods. It was kind of a baptizing of a pagan feast. The Three Masses. In Jerusalem, which had its own liturgical tradition dating back, way back to the time of the apostles, they had a, we have a record of a pilgrim who traveled to Jerusalem in the fourth century. And she writes how on Christmas they celebrated three different prayer services. The bishop and all the people would go, first of all, to Bethlehem, and they would celebrate Mass during the night. And then from Bethlehem, they would make their way back to Jerusalem, and as they entered the city, they had a prayer service. As the sun was coming up, as dawn was approaching, they would have a prayer service. And then 
they continued in procession, and then as full daylight dawned, in the full light of day, they would celebrate uh, in the church of the resurrection, they would celebrate another mass, right over uh, the empty tomb. So they would start in the place where Jesus was born, and then where Jesus went in to offer his life to save the world, they would have a prayer service in the morning as the sun was coming up, and then they would finish uh, with a glorious celebration of the Mass in the place of Christ's rising from the dead. So there's three services in a tradition in Jerusalem already well established in the 300. So this probably goes back maybe even to the time of the apostles, this tradition, or, or soon after the apostles. In Rome, what we find in the fourth century so we find the celebration of the day, the Die Natalis of Christ, the birthday of Christ. We found it being celebrated during the day in St. Peter's Basilica. But in the fifth century, some relics of the crib from Bethlehem were brought to Rome, and they became housed in one of the first churches in the West dedicated to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Church of St. Mary Major. And so popular piety encouraged the celebration of the Mass at night right over those relics in the Church of St. Mary major. So it's like, like the service in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, they would have a service in the Church of St. Mary Major over the relics of the crib from Bethlehem. And there's a tradition as well uh, in honor of the Byzantine officials who lived in Rome, the Byzantines who had a different liturgical tradition, they lived in Rome and their parish church was the Church of St. Anastasia. And that was located in the city. So what they would do is the Pope himself, and to honor on the day of Christ's birth, to honor the Byzantine officials in the city, he would go to the church of St. Anastasia and he would celebrate another mass there. So at night they would be at the church of St. Mary Major. And then he would make his way in procession to the church of St. Anastasia and celebrate mass for the Byzantine officials who were in Rome at the time. And then they would have a grand procession to St. Peter's Basilica itself and celebrate the mass during the day. So here we have kind of emerging from this practical history of the liturgy, the tradition of having three masses on Christmas. So it comes out of, uh, it comes out of practical considerations and kind of the living faith of the people. And that's the lesson. The liturgy is an expression of the church's love for Christ and worship of Christ. It develops under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but it's something alive. We contribute to it. We live it. It's active. It's not just a textbook thing. So the tradition of having three Masses on Christmas, so all the priests can celebrate three Masses, kind of comes out of the living of the faith in Jerusalem and then throughout the ancient world in Rome, and it stayed with us. And staying with us, we know the liturgy develops under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so there's meaning to these three Masses. And I would say, most especially, there's a theological meaning and a spiritual meaning. Let's look at the theological meaning. The meaning of the three Christmas Masses. The theological meaning, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, he reflected there are three masses on Christmas because there are three births of Christ, in a sense, theologically. The first birth of Christ is his birth in eternity. Jesus is the Son of God, the Father, from all eternity. So in a certain sense, his birth in eternity is imitated or celebrated by the first mass at night. And then Jesus was actually born into time, right? into Bethlehem, into the Roman Empire at a certain point in time. So that's his second birth, the second Mass. And then the third Mass, the third birth, the birth of Jesus in every individual soul at baptism. Right? When, the, when the candle of the person being baptized is lit from the Paschal candle. Right? So this is the birth of Christ in the individual soul. So three births of Christ kind of symbolized or reflected by the tradition, the ancient tradition of having three Masses on Christmas. That's the theological meaning. But there's also a spiritual meaning 
for each one of us as we live our spiritual lives. There's kind of a parallel. We have a parallel. We're born in a certain sense three times as well. Before time began, God was already thinking of us, loving us, knowing us. He actually says this in the scriptures. Before you were born, I knew you. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. So that's our first birth, right, outside of time. And then God himself governs the circumstances of our birth in time. He's the one who decides what country I'm going to be born in, what culture, what period, what situation. So we have our birth in time, our second birth, the second mass. And then at the end of our life, when we die, if we die in friendship with Christ, we are born into eternal life. And so we're born back into eternity, in a sense, the full light of day where we see God face to face. And that's kind of a reflection of the third Mass of Christmas. So this is the heart of the liturgical ceremony. These three Masses, which kind of emerged from the reality of living the liturgy, the the gritty reality of, of, of faith as it grew under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the first centuries. But it's taken on a meaning, a theological meaning, a spiritual meaning that we can all reflect on and benefit from. The Emergence of Advent. Okay, so we've looked at the establishment of the date for Christmas and the elements that went into that. We looked at the establishment of the heart of the liturgical celebration, which is the three masses, the meanings, where it came from, what it means for us. Now we're ready to take a quick, brief look at where the season of Advent came from or how it emerged as well uh, to adorn the season, kind of prepare for the season of Christmas. And it happened in six steps, okay? So first, in the 300s, we had the emergence of the dates for Christmas and for Epiphany. So that creates kind of a Christmas season, right? You've got this bridge, these 12 days, and the Christmas season kind of took on its 12-day shape. And then soon thereafter, there developed the octave day, the eighth day after Christmas, right? Which would be January 1st, which is a celebration of the motherhood of Jesus, which is the oldest Marian feast in, in the Roman liturgy, but also the circumcision of Jesus, because it's kind of a carryover from Jewish tradition. On the eighth day after being born, a boy was circumcised. So you had the motherhood of Mary celebrated and uh, exalted on the feast of our Lord's circumcision. So you have the octave, the eight days. And then there developed in Spain and in Gaul in the 400s, the tradition, an ascetical tradition in Spain and in Gaul, Gaul is modern day France, there developed a tradition of preparing for this Christmas season uh, between Christmas feast and Epiphany and the whole season to prepare through a period of ascetical practice or uh, ascesis, right? an ascetical preparation period starting on December 17th. So you have a period, a week, a little more than a week preparing for these great feasts. And then in the 500s in Rome in, and in Italy, you had a development of a liturgical period of preparation. So in Spain, uh, in Spain and Gaul, it was an ascetical preparation, sacrifice, self-sacrifice, doing penance, preparing to celebrate these great feasts. And then in the 500s in Rome and in Italy, it was a question of developing liturgical preparation for this feast. At first, it was a six-week period, and then it became a four-week period right around the year 600. So by the year 600, we have four weeks for Advent. Uh, we have the Feast of Christmas. We have the Feast of Epiphany. We have the Octave, the Motherhood of Jesus. Uh, in the circus. So we have the whole season is kind of taking shape, the second most intense liturgical season of the year after Lent and Easter. Now, this did not happen in the East, this development of the Advent season didn't occur in the East, which again shows us that the liturgy is a living thing. The heart and the core is from God, is unchangeable. 
It's our worship of God as God wants us to, as the Holy Spirit develops. But it, it can change according to the, the needs and the experiences of faith of the different people in different localities under the guidance, obviously, of the Holy Spirit and with approval of the church. Uh, so this didn't happen in the East. And then one other thing that developed pretty early was the favorite symbol for this season, for the season of the manifestation of our Lord through his incarnation. And it was the, what's called the etimasia, which is something you're familiar with, the empty throne. The empty throne of the emperor, our Lord from heaven, who left his throne and came down to earth, which had a double meaning from very early times. The throne is empty because our Lord is coming again, right? He's gone into heaven, but here on earth, it's his vicar who reigns, right? So you had this period, of the first period, the first four weeks of Advent, became a period of ascetical preparation for the coming of our Lord, the second coming of our Lord. Lord, come again, and we're looking forward to that because the throne is empty. He's going to come again. And then the second meaning of that is the emptying of the throne in heaven when he came to Christmas. And so the second half of Advent focuses more and more on the joy of anticipation that our Lord is going to come to earth again through the celebration of Christmas and be born into the Bethlehems of our hearts. So that's the development of the, of the liturgy of Advent and Christmas. And it shows, I think, the biggest lesson that we've seen is that it really is, it's a living thing. The liturgy is the living worship of the church. It's tied into the lives of the faithful. And we're meant to participate in the liturgy in an active way, in a living way. Is that how you describe your participation in the liturgy? Are you allowing God, who has sanctified all of time through the liturgy, to sanctify the time of your life? The days, the weeks, the months? That's a question that I invite you to reflect on as you go through the personal questionnaire, which will help you reflect on how you live the liturgy. Are you living it actively? Are you engaging in it? And how could you maybe live it better? And how could you allow the power of the liturgy to transform your own use of time in your life. The liturgy is a living expression of the church's love, reverence, and need for God. How alive is my liturgical life? The following eight questions may help you reflect on how you are living the liturgy. Take as much time as you want to reflect on, answer, and pray over these questions. You may want to write down your answers to help your reflection. When I think about the pace of my life, which aspects would I consider healthy, and which would I consider unhealthy, and why? What are the three most influential factors in determining how I use my time? If I could change one of them, which would I change, and why? Liturgy involves the sanctification of time. To what extent do I allow the liturgical seasons and feasts to sanctify my time? Which describes me better and why? A. I fit the church's liturgy into my schedule. Or B. I build my schedule around the liturgical year. How would my daily life, my attitudes, my actions, and moods be different if I were living the liturgical year more actively and profoundly? In the past, what has helped me most in trying to live the liturgy?
What adjustment can I make today in order to live the liturgical year better? We hope you found this retreat guide helpful. Please send us your feedback at rcspirituality.org. This retreat guide is a service of Regnum Christi and the Legionaries of Christ, produced by coronationmedia.com.